I'm an addict from Orlando, Florida. My name's Biff. Could uh, you join me in a moment of silence so that all the emotion that's just gone through can, uh, I can kind of calm down just a little bit and maybe get back into a place where I can share? Um, I, I do have to tell you that uh, I don't really share a whole lot about my using because um, most of it's fantasy anyhow. When I got here, um, I was not a hope-to-die dope fiend. I was a drug addict. And if you weren't a hope-to-die dope fiend when I got here, you didn't feel a part of. So my whole first year or year and a half here, I lied about my using. It, and that's definitely a yet. That needle's still out there for me if I don't do what I need to do. And I have to tell you that when I got here, if you hadn't put a needle in your arm, you didn't feel like you belonged. Also, I have to tell you, I paid no attention to our readings, which said we don't care what or how much you used or who your connections were. And I, I think the most difficult thing I thought I had to do is after about a year, year and a half clean, I had to tell my home. really cared. All they cared about was that I was there and that I wanted to stay clean. And they certainly understood what it was like not to be able to be honest when they first got here. I like to talk a little bit about my feelings rather than about my using, because my feelings are why I used, or at least one of the reasons I used. I also believe I was born with the disease of addiction and that it was with me, as you heard last night, way before I ever picked up my first drug, fused. I would love to say I came from a dysfunctional family and I realize who hasn't. I don't think I would know a functional family if I ran over one. <laughs> but it would be really nice to blame my family for my using. It wouldn't be true, but it would be nice. You know, I don't remember anybody in my family holding my nose, pouring anything down my throat, shoving anything in my mouth or telling me what I had to do or do, did not. The choices were clear difficulty I had after I got clean. But I don't think that I'm very new, unique in that. I don't think any of the guys that I've sponsored came from a place where they knew what a good family looked like, what they knew what love or intimacy felt like, that they knew what vulnerability was. All of the guys that I sponsored were afraid. I have to tell you that for me, I came in here as a chicken, scared to death. Yeah, I never really felt like I had a childhood. My family um, kind of didn't really have time for children you know, or choose not to have time for children. So the only positive feedback I ever got from my family was when I acted like an adult. Um, they had me taking messages on the phone when I was two and three years old, and, and the clearer that I got the message, the, the, the better a, a, a boy I was. An A on their report card, they got five bucks. If I got a B on my report card, I got punished. You know, they didn't know anything at all about positive reinforcement in my family. Um, so, so I grew up with all of that stuff. I grew up, um, with my mother and father having planned a career path for me that I had no desire to follow. My mother had my whole life mapped out. 
And it was really the life she wanted to lead that she didn't get a chance only to get a partial scholarship. And in my mother's eyes, that made me a failure because they couldn't afford to send me for the rest of it. And that was the beginning of what I learned about that. Somehow or other, through all of that, I started using when I was 13. And I, it was interesting. I was talking to some folks, Bob and, and some of the other guys that, today, and it brought back some memories about my first real, real using experience. And when I was 13, my drug of choice was liquid because my grandmother, who I loved very much, and she had guilt down to a science. <laughs> and the reason I was bar mitzvah because my grandmother said to me, I should only live long enough to see you bar mitzvah. <laughs> right? How do you say no to that? Right, so I went through this whole ceremony, and we had this big reception afterwards. And I had my little 12-year-old girlfriend, who is probably the only woman I've ever truly been in love with in my life. Right? And she was standing up against a wall, and I must have missed her head by about that far and slammed my face right into the wall. And I would love to tell you that my relationships in using got better than that, but they never did. I uh, used very unsuccessfully for 25 years. I thought everybody blacked out when they used, no matter what they used. I couldn't understand why you would use if you could remember it the next day. It, I really, really didn't care. And the insane thing through all of this was that somehow or other, I went to high school, I went to college, I went to medical school. I didn't even want to be a doctor when I grew up. You know, that was not in my plans. The government and their wisdom interfered with me. They brought in something called Vietnam when I was in college. And my choices were to come up here. You can understand why. You know. <laughs> Doesn't take rocket science to figure that one out. So what happened to me is later on down the road, I ended up blowing out a disc in my back, you know, with about eight or nine years clean. And so I quit practicing. So then I could tell you that I was a doctor because I couldn't help you anymore. Well, I'm back in practice. Oh, well. <laughs> Shows you that I have no idea where my life is going. I, uh, I was an acknowledged leader in the podiatric medical profession my whole first 13 years of, of practice, and I was using the entire time. When I got clean, I was the vice president of the Florida Podiatric Medical Association. And my ego was so bad that I felt that I had to resign from the Podiatric Medical Association position because me being an addict would reflect negatively on the association. Like, it really, you know, we'll quit. <laughs> Unfortunately, not any of them have, and all of them are dead. I've only, I only have two people that I know that I use with, and both of them are in the rooms. And I'm grateful to say that I was able to 12-step both of those men. And, and uh, I'm still uh, truly grateful every time I get My wife, who when I met her was a singer and an entertainer and a dancer and a choreographer, was studying to become a guidance counselor. Oh, my, what happened to me being able to be a groupie? So um, 
part of her learning stuff was she had to take, she had to go into counseling. She had to take therapy or something. And her attitude was, if I'm going into therapy, you're going into therapy. <laughs> well, within, you know, because to understand, I had all of these things. My wife had the same thing, so I was paying for all these therapy sessions. And I laugh about it, and I kid about it, and they don't understand a lot of that stuff. And, and I remember there was a very, very well-known therapist that came and did a thing with us, and, and, and he was going to help us, right? And I had this issue, whatever it was, and I got out, and it was a gestalt thing, and I'm in the, on the floor face-to-face -face with him. And he said to me, it's real, real simple. All you have to do is tell them this. He sent me a thank you note. He did. And hopefully he's using this. Um, I like fun of their therapy group, but I have to tell you, they probably saved my life. Because they kept me clean long enough, or kept me sane long enough to even consider getting clean. Well, this, this intervention was arranged by my wife, and she called me at the office, and she said to me, um, there's an emergency that's come up, and I really need you to come to, with me to the therapist tomorrow morning, and I've called your staff, and I've canceled your appointments for the morning, and you really have to come. And I said, well, cool, I'll take my car, you take yours, because I'll, that way I can go back to work in the office and you can go on about what you, what you need. Some reason, and they gave me the choice of whether or not I wanted to sit in that chair. And I don't know today why I sat down in the chair other than I have a God of my understanding. And I sat in that chair, and about by the time they got to the second or third person, it was like, all right, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we have an appointment set up with you on Monday to go into treatment at, at this particular place. I have some real strong opinions about things. Treatment was a safe place to hide. It was an interesting, interesting thing. I got there and I walked into this place for this interview and there was this woman behind this huge desk she was a very big, nasty-looking woman, scared the crap out of me. And she had this big sign behind her head, on the left side of her head. And the sign said, if you can't impress him with your brilliance. Saturday, the house I was trying to sell that I was living in closed, and my half of the, the proceeds from that closure was $300 more than it cost to go into the treatment program for eight weeks. So it was real clearly that I needed to be there. The 12-step program I was exposed to in Florida in 1980 was Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't call it a mother fellowship or an other fellowship. I call it alcoholic. And that's what they, they were doing the best they could with what they had. Right? There was one Narcotics Anonymous meeting in Florida at the time, and it happened to be in the town where this treatment center was, and I would love to tell you, I went to my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting and felt right at home. Not even close. I, you, I don't know, I'm sure if you're new, you remember how scared you were when you walked into your first meeting. And if you're not new, you remember how scared you were when you walked into your first meeting. And I left. And I said, I'm not going back there. Now, I don't know what I expected from them, 
if I wasn't willing to do anything myself, but I didn't feel particularly welcomed. I uh, left that area and went into a halfway house for recovering physicians uh, up in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was the first real-life podiatrist they'd ever seen. Bring her very slim. Well, my wife had already filed for divorce. My father was dead, and my mother had no idea where I was. So one more time, it was like, I don't belong here. But I had nowhere else to go, so I didn't leave. And for that, I'm truly grateful. And, and there was the, the, the head of the program took me under his wing because they nicknamed me the bastard of the program since nobody was parenting me. The NA meetings, but they don't count in your three meetings. Well, if you'd have seen what NA looked like in Atlanta in 1980, you'd have understood their logic. <laughs> I, I mean, we are a wonderful fellowship, and we've grown a tremendous amount. But 28 and a half years ago, Narcotics Anonymous had very little, if any, recovery on the East Coast. The West Coast was, 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 was cranking pretty well. They couldn't have promoted NA any better than that, but it's only, you can't go. It doesn't count. Right? Well, I didn't fit with the other doctors either. You know, these guys had the, those nice shiny shoes where you could see your face in them, and they had the, 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 the uh, khaki pants with the crease so sharp you could cut cheese with it, and the nice button-down shirts, you know, and, and, and they were all looking professional. I was wearing cowboy boots, jeans, and T-shirts. Right. And um, now understand I've been to one NA meeting in my life and was not felt at all welcome. Now here we pull up to this place and it was this dilapidated building that was collapsing with a big porch out in the front which was also collapsing and probably about 50 Harleys out front. At least it felt like 50. It was probably 10, but it felt like 50 to us. Right? And I'm coming out with these two guys that you know, preppy look. Right. His, his name is Forrest. And, and I got to know Forrest very well, as a lot of other people did too, but not that day. And I was sure that, I, I was not sure that if I went into that building, I would come out intact. You know, I was absolutely petrified. I went into the meeting anyhow, and I you know, tried to disappear in a big soft chair that they had inside. And at that point, some, and I, I still get the chills, and it still chokes me up, because I finally didn't have to change anything at all to be right where I was. And now I'm upset because i got to go back to Florida, and we don't have what they had in Georgia. You know, and, and I... I went to my three AA meetings a week that I had to go to for the halfway house, and these people were very kind and gracious, and I didn't say a word in most of the meetings while I was in the halfway houses by one of the treatment counselors. <laughs> Worked for me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, obviously, you know, I was 
madly in love with this and thinking was centered around her in one form or another from that point on. <laughs> and, you know, she could have lost her job. They would have thrown me out of the house, all that other stuff. And the guy who is now the executive director of that uh, halfway house facility was brand new, and he was in charge of the, of the residence that I was living in. And he would say to me, I know you're doing it. I just can't figure out how. And I said, what? You know, I'm in denial. The other state university called Florida State is centered in Tallahassee. Talk about being a stranger in a strange land, you know. Yeah, that's because they can't do anything but that. Personal foul, personal foul, personal foul. We know. Two out of three years national championship. Sorry, guys. But anyhow, I was really not particularly comfortable in Tallahassee. And pretty much by the time I had unpacked my, took enough inventory of myself to realize that that was happened to me. And I'm here to tell you, you know, I keep hearing this crap about consenting adults and knowing what the hell they're doing. And if you're as new and as vulnerable as I was, I had no friggin' idea what I was doing. All right? And she left me alone in a motel room in Atlanta, Georgia, in so much pain, all I could, you know, if somebody is vulnerable and you take advantage of that vulnerability, you're 13th stepping. What it did to me was it made me impossible for me to trust women for a very long time. Right. So what did it do? It let me create a path of destruction wherever I went. In Tallahassee, hating it, there was no NA. I went to no meetings. They told us when we left the halfway house, go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor, you know, all the stuff that we should do if we're sane. Uh, if you're new, Please don't do what I did unless you're really in the mood to test your pain threshold. I didn't go to any meetings, and I would call most of the time because I was petrified of being alone. Everything I felt using, I felt clean without any anesthesia. I was miserable. I was scared. I was lonely. I was all those things and would not go to a meeting, and I'm still clean. Thank you. It had nothing to do with me. Finally, I went to a meeting. And I went to the meeting. This guy had to be six foot four, and he said to me, where are you going? Oh, I got to go here. I wasn't working. I wasn't doing anything. I was collecting disability. He said to me, where are you going? Oh, I got to do this. I got. He said, no, you don't. He says, you got to come to coffee with us. And that began the process of recovery for me. All right. And something else happened. I learned a very valuable lesson for me. And that's that I get out of a meeting what I'm willing to bring into it. And that if I go there with an attitude of not just taught early on after this episode, get there early, stay to the end. If you got to go to the bathroom, go before the meeting starts. If you're smoking a cigarette, smoke it before the meeting. Sit through the entire meeting and leave after the prayer.
I still do that today. At that point, my addiction to nicotine... It also gave me no more excuses of leaving the meeting in the middle of it. <laughs> I, uh, I, was, I, I, went, I got really comfortable going to meetings up there, and then I got a job offer in another town. And now I'm petrified. And I went to this meeting and said, well, what if it doesn't work? And, blah, 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 blah. and they said something that never occurred to me. You can always come back. Finally started to go to meetings after about 30 days, and I was totally insane, and reached a point where I, I went to my first meeting. And I went to my first meeting in a leather coat, really nice pants, nice shirt, looking as good as I thought I could look because I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I walked into this meeting, and I stood there, and it was an AA meeting, and nobody came up to me, and nobody said anything the first time. And this guy says to me, you belong in the back room. Okay. So there was a meeting in the back room, and I went into the meeting in the back room, and I sat down there, and this guy leans over to me, and he says to me, do you want to go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting? And I was like, yeah, man, is there a password? You know? <laughs> So this guy, one other guy in that meeting, and I went to this narc. I remember that name. But George had the most amazing message of recovery. The problem was is he couldn't hear his own message. George is dead from this disease. But I have to tell you what I learned from George, and that was to listen to the message and not to judge the messenger because his message saved my life about total insanity talk about you know we broke every tradition we violated every concept before they were written we did absolutely and none of us had worked a step I mean steps what was that that's that stuff that was on the wall you know but I have to tell you something. Alcoholics Anonymous, in their infinite wisdom, was amazing when we started NA. They violated all their traditions. I guess it didn't matter to them or whatever. But they let us. Boy, that was great for my anonymity because the night what they got was Dr. Kramer's office. Yes. <laughs> but my anonymity was shot anyhow because by that point I was on a staff of a hospital, and I had I was. I was the head of the podiatry department at that hospital after I came back, and I went to my first staff meeting. And it was a long, drawn-out thing, and it was about 11 o'clock at night when they finally got to the podiatry report, and I was half asleep, and they called. I wasn't really concerned about my anonymity, and, and, and uh, we, we realized sooner or later, we, we went to our first regional meeting, which was like the second meeting of the Florida region. And um, we get there, and the, the guy who was chairing the meeting says, was anybody who wasn't here last time? And so the three of us raise our hand. They said, where are you from? And they said, Orlando. Oh, you're the Orlando area. Now, there were three of us that made up the entire area. There were no other people coming to meetings at that point. Right? There were addicts. We absolutely did everything we could wrong. When we first started, 
the NA meetings, we had AA speakers, because none of us, we were tired of telling each other our stories, (laughs) each other's stories, you know. We were given one thing, one thing that I don't see as many people have as we have. We were given the gift of desperation. Truly that gift came back. My mother didn't take that good care of me. But because of that, and because we talked to each other on the phone three, four, five times a day, even though we didn't have a program, even though we hadn't worked the steps, the therapeutic value of one addict helping another with whatever help we could give kept us alive, kept us clean, and kept us going long enough until we could do the things we needed to do to change. Stationary from my office on the other side. No tradition violation there, you know. And it was printed on the copy machine from my office. We printed all of the pamphlets, all four of them, because we didn't print the Spanish one at that point. We printed all four pamphlets the same way, because when you called Jimmy in Sun Valley, he couldn't get you the pamphlets fast enough. He didn't say copy them, but he didn't say don't copy them either. Chair of the Florida region before I worked a step. And I paid the price. Unless you have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, you have no clue of the spiritual concepts behind the traditions. There is no way without an awakening of your spirit you can understand the spiritual nature of the traditions. That didn't stop me. I was an expert. I was very dangerous. I was six hours meeting. They drove a hundred miles to participate in that every friggin' month. And you know what? They kept coming back and we kept getting better. That's all about where I hid. At three years clean, I had the world by the you know what's. I was chair of the region. I was I was a practicing doctor. I had that beautiful woman that I had met in recovery. We met at the World Convention in New York. Well, actually, we met in Panama City about eight months before then or four months before then or something. But we were spiritual. She was there with another guy. I was there with another woman. We talked at the pool, but we wouldn't take each other's phone number because that wouldn't have been spiritual. So I didn't know whether I was ever going to see that woman again or anything like that, but I clearly did not forget her. And I was at the World Convention in New York City, waiting in the lobby for a friend of mine. Does that mean we can play? And I said, yes. (laughs) And it was, you know, I have to tell you the truth. We loved each other as much as we were possibly capable of loving each other, considering neither one of us had a God in our lives because neither one of us had worked the steps. We did the best we could, as well as we could. And we were the darlings of that convention because everybody could tell we were in love. You know, and, and New York City, the best we could. But I have to tell you that my experience with us, at least my experience with relationships, is we're real sloppy getting out of them. We don't do it very gracefully, and I really believe that part of it is we want to make so sure we burn that bridge is that we use ten tons more dynamite than we needed to make sure we can't go back. She had an affair with a guy that I used to sponsor. 
we met it over to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And I remember my sponsor sitting down and saying to me, if I could take your pain and you would still learn the lesson you need to learn here, I would do it. But I can't. My grand sponsor was a piece of work. I, Bob knows him very well. It was Bob's sponsor for a long time. He was you loved me when he said it, but I also believed him. <laughs> and I was walking around, and he would say to me, where are you going? And I said, I don't know. He'd say, all right, go back to bed. I had no clue. There was a man at my side at that convention 24-7. They led me to meetings. They led me everywhere I needed to go. I was never alone. And when your ass is in a crack, man, if it's not the men with the men and the women with the women, you're screwed. He uh, survived other relationships in recovery that weren't quite as dramatic as that. Um, I've had more than a few. I have a sponsor. I have the same sponsor now for 25 years, almost 26 years. When um, I was looking for a sponsor in Orlando, nobody had more clean time than I did. And nobody had worked any more steps than I did, which were none. And uh, I finally asked my friends in service, because I about him was what I didn't like about me. The problem was is that he wasn't as bad as I was in those areas. It was my problem. But the arrogance that I had is I went and interviewed his sponsees to see what kind of sponsor he was before I would ask him. I drove from Orlando all the way down to Miami and interviewed four or five of his sponsees, and they all talked about a guy I didn't know. So I remember asking, and he said, I'm not even sure I trust my motives. I'll tell you tomorrow. i got to go talk to my sponsor. <laughs> he came back to me, and he said to me, okay, I did it. Just remember one thing. You asked me. That means we do this my way. See, I'm from that same old school that you heard about last night. When my sponsor told me to do something and I had three, because the reality is, is the guys who want it, they're going to do what they need to do to get it. And the guys who don't want it, there's nothing I can do to get them to want it. The guys I sponsor have to do what I do if they want to get what I got. It's just that simple. You want what I have, do what I did to get it. I can't give it to you. you got to get it yourself. You better show up and give it to the addict who still suffers. Now, I'd love to tell you I had learned all these lessons way back then, and my life was very smooth from that point on. But I've lived a bunch of lives in recovery, and they've all been extraordinarily interesting, and they've all given me opportunities to grow and change. I, uh, and the problem I had was from that time until the time I went bankrupt, I could not quite readjust my lifestyle to the income I was now making. I was still living the lifestyle of the income I was making when I was practicing. I kept thinking about changing it, but I just didn't know how. 
And of course, I wouldn't discuss it with anybody. You know, why would I do that? Right? And I remember that I reached a point where there was nowhere else to go. And I remember talking to my accountant, me to go bankrupt. I use this money. I owe this money. It's not right. It's not good for my program. And he said to me, all right, I've heard about as much of this crap as I'm going to listen to. He said, I know a guy that used to sit behind a desk and say to his sponsees, if it's not practical, it's not spiritual. How practical is it that if you give your entire salary to the credit card companies that you owe money to, last thing you had ever thought of me, you thought money, property, and prestige might be his problem, but he'll never run out. God has a great way of doing things like that. If money and property and prestige are your problem, you won't have any of it for long. I didn't have a problem with money, property, and prestige after that. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any property. Certainly didn't have any prestige. But I didn't learn much either. And I hit that point at about 19. You need to give me this. You need to get me this. You need to get me that. And somewhere along the line, I had finally, at almost 20 years clean, what they call a moment of clarity. And something said to me, you asshole, get down on your knees and ask God what you can do for him instead of telling him what he should do for you. Don't. Weeks later, I was in the emergency room of a hospital diagnosed with stage four cancer. It was not real difficult to focus at that point. We had one thing to focus on. That whole thing was a miracle, and I used to tell the whole story, but I'm going to take some of that off because that happened nine years ago. And things have happened since then, and if I end with my cancer, I'm not telling you everything I need to tell you about me. But what I will tell you is that it was a miracle, arrogant asshole, because I'm scared when I get to the hospital. Please let me treat these people with respect because I know they're only trying there to help me and I'm the one that's scared, not them. And oh, by the way, if you happen to have a guardian angel that you're not using, if you could have them meet me at the hospital, I'd really appreciate it, you know. <laughs> and I got to the hospital on a Saturday morning in the emergency room and there was nobody in the waiting room. Has anybody ever been to a hospital on a Saturday morning with nobody in the stuff? And they said, oh, by the way, there just happens to be one of the oncologists in the emergency room now on a Saturday morning. And they brought the oncologist in, and he walked in the door, and I started to cry. And he said to me, why are you crying? And I said, I prayed for a guardian angel, and he sent you. And he walked out of the room. And I went, oh, what did I do? You feel somebody breathing down your neck, it's me getting ready to run up your ass, you better kick it up a notch. <laughs> and he said to me, this is going to be fun. And I, he said, the disease you have is terminal, and we're going to beat it. And at the time that I was diagnosed, it was a type of lymphoma that had had no recovery. And I was one of those poster boys that now is responsible for the fact that there's a 90-something percent cure rate for this type of cancer. The time, 
There were two phones in the room, and the switchboard operators kept coming up to see who I was because they were sure I was some celebrity checked in under a, 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 a pseudonym because the phones were backed up all day long with you people. When you tucked me in at night. You kissed me on the cheek. You told me it was going to be okay. When I woke up, you gave me a hug, and you say you got another day made. All that I had kept between me and you was gone because I didn't have the strength to keep it up for those six weeks. And it really wasn't all that bad having you all on my side of the wall. Actually, it was pretty damn nice. It was better than nice. It was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And what I learned was that the power of this fellowship is beyond your wildest dreams. There is nothing... We can't do with the love. Clean. All of a sudden, I got a job. All of a sudden, I need money. I had no money. I was completely destitute. People had raised money to support me while I was in the hospital. Now, all of a sudden, money, property, and prestige are becoming an issue again. Fortunately, it didn't get anywhere. Fortunately, I learned from the last time. Fortunately, I talked to my sponsor. Fortunately, I remembered what the steps were for. Fortunately, I did all the right things. Until I was at the regional service office in Florida, and he was visiting. And you can ask him what I looked like on the phone with that woman all day long. I mean, I was glowing. I, it was so obvious what was going on. And, and it was a beautiful thing. And I am so grateful for her because what she gave me that was missing, I was so grateful to be alive, I had lost my passion for life. And she gave me back my passion for life. I haven't seen her in five years. Five years ago, we met somewhere at a, at a, at a, at a hotel that she was working at that I, I brought an N.A. meeting to, and she had a chance to make amends, and I had a chance to make amends, and then we lost contact. And she found me on one of these wonderful websites that are around now, you know, Plaxo, I think, or one of them. And she got a hold of me, and she said, asked me for something, and I was over in her neck of the woods, and we were supposed to have lunch. And fortunately, as God sees it, away from me because he knows damn well if he lets me keep them, they're going to kill me. And the other thing I've learned is if I'm in a relationship and it's supposed to work, I'll be in that relationship. And if the relationship doesn't work, that's why I'm not in it. And I can play with it anytime I want to, and I can do everything I want to do with it, but if it ain't supposed to, and the only thing that hurts me, and my sponsor told me this 26 years ago, and I'm telling you, I'm still looking for one time where this is not true. And he said to me, the only time you're angry, the only time you're scared, the only time you're in pain, the only time you're hurting, the only time you're arrogant, the only time you're anything negative, is when you're afraid you're not going to get your own way, period. Go back into practice.